there's an idiom that people sometimes use when they are absolutely sure of something. It goes something like, I'd stake my life on that. Sometimes people use that flippantly, right? Like, it's going to snow tonight. I'd stake my life on that. Really? You'd stake your life on that? Sometimes people use it persuasively. This is a good investment. You should invest in this. It's going to pay off. I'd stake my life on that. Sometimes we can think of literal examples. People who don't necessarily use that phrase, but they literally stake their life on something. You might think of Charles Lindbergh. My dad reminded me of Charles Lindbergh as he watched a movie about him recently. And he was the, he was the one who made the first solo, nonstop, transatlantic flight. Can you imagine being the first one to do that, to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean over 33 hours? Imagine trying to stay awake for 33 hours sitting in a plane. Apparently, he had a hard time. But he was willing to stake his life on his ability to make that flight and maybe on his plane's ability, the spirit of St. Louis, to make that flight. And he succeeded. The literal examples are what we are considering this morning. Admittedly, staking your life may not be the best phrase as it might imply gambling with your life. We're not talking about gambling with your life, but we are talking about being absolutely sure of something to the degree that you give your life to it or give your life up for it. One thing we need to be clear about from the beginning is that staking your life on something, so to speak, is entirely different than wishful thinking. Wishful thinking doesn't really require anything of you, doesn't put any demands on your life. Lee Strobel, who was a Christian apologist, once had the opportunity to sit down with the late Hugh Hefner. Apparently, Hugh Hefner didn't really realize who he was sitting down with. He was surprised to find out that Lee Strobel was an evangelical Christian. Nevertheless, he proceeded to have a, a friendly, engaging conversation. In that conversation, Lee Strobel had the opportunity to share the gospel with Hugh Hefner. And then Strobel asked him about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Hefner replied, If anyone had any real evidence that indeed Jesus did return from the dead, then that is the beginning of a dropping of a series of dominoes that takes us to all kinds of of wonderful things. It assures an afterlife and all kinds of things that we would all hope are true. Now, when he used that word hope, he was not using it in the biblical sense, which is tied closely to faith and assurance. He was using it in the wishful thinking kind of way. We all wish that would be true. An afterlife, that sounds great. But no one would accuse Hugh Hefner of staking his life on the truthfulness of the gospel. His life did not bear evidence of that kind of confidence. As you might have guessed, he remained unconvinced. He went on to say, I don't think that Jesus is any more the Son of God than we are. What about you? Are you passively wishing the gospel is true? That the resurrection of the dead will happen? that heaven is real and that God will welcome you into his kingdom? Or by faith, are you believing it is true in such a way that you gladly surrender your will and your life to Christ? Wishful thinking doesn't require anything of you. It doesn't call you to make any sacrifice doesn't make you give anything up. What is your life characterized by? Wishful thinking or faith? The Hebrew Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews was written had heard the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him and the promises he made. When they came to faith in Christ, it had radical implications for their lives. We don't know all the implications, but from the letter that was written to them, we can pick up on some of the implications 
that believing and trusting in Christ had for them. It likely caused conflict within some of their families, their Jewish families. They were ridiculed. They were ostracized. They were persecuted. Some of them had their property plundered. Coming to faith in Christ was costly. They had to give up their comfort. They had to give up the acceptance and approval of family and friends. And some of them gave up their property. Some of them gave up their freedom as they were imprisoned. Coming to faith in Christ required them to give up a lot. For them, it was more than wishful thinking. But as they experienced their thing, uh, these things, some, for some of them, their faith began to waver. They began to have some doubts, some questions, some reluctance to continue to make these sacrifices. And so the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to write this letter as a word of exhortation to encourage and strengthen these believers who are getting a little bit weak in the knees. And he wrote to them to exhort them to hold fast to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, to maintain their, their faith, their confidence in this. And he did so by exalting Jesus. He reminded them of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He drew beautifully, eloquently, from the Old Testament scriptures, demonstrating that Christ is the fulfillment of everything promised in the Old Testament and everything the Old Testament pointed to. He reminded them of these things so that they would know that there was nowhere else they could turn. They needed their sins to be forgiven. And there was no other sacrifice that could be offered apart from the sacrifice of Christ. They needed a priest to mediate between them and God, and there was no other priest they could turn to besides Jesus, our great high priest. He reminded them of these beautiful, glorious truths. Another thing he did was remind them of other saints who had gone before them who had also endured trials and suffering. And they had made it. They had made it. And so he turns this corner, the end of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, saying, you need to endure. And guess what? There's others who have endured as well. You're not alone in this. You're not the first ones to go through this. God's people have experienced this kind of thing in every generation. Remember the saints of old who endured and persevered in the midst of trials and suffering and hardship. Remember their example. He reminded them of their example to encourage them and to instruct them. To encourage them that they're not alone, that others had endured, and they too can endure. And to instruct them, this is what faith looks like. This is how it plays out in our lives. Here's the evidence of faith in the Lord. And so we've been working our way through chapter 11, which is a wonderful chapter often referred to as the hall of faith. We're reminded of these saints of old who have gone before us, who have trusted in the Lord even when it was costly. Their example reminds us that it's worth it. Our passage today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 40. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. In our passage today, we will see more examples of heroes of the faith and get a fuller picture of how faith shapes our lives as followers of Jesus. Our passage breaks up into three parts. First, we read about Moses and the Exodus in, chapter, in verses 23 through 29. Then we have a, a brief discourse on the conquest of Canaan in verses 30 and 31. And then we have a summary of many other saints of old in verses 32 through 38. And the final two verses, verses 39 and 40, are a summary 
of the entire chapter. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 40, and I encourage you to follow along. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Amen. The beginning of chapter 11, the author of Hebrews described faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Chapter 11 shows commendable examples of saints who put faith into practice. They provide us examples of what it means to have assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. As we consider the final section of chapter 11, there are five things in these verses that we need to understand and apply to our hearts and lives through the power of the Spirit. First, faith frees us from the fear of man. We might think of the fear of man in terms of fearing other people's opinions of us, fearing their judgments. While every single one of us struggles with this to one degree or another, faith in God enables us to overcome this so that we do not act according to the fear of man. In verses 23 through 29, the author turns our attention to Moses and the Exodus. But before we hear about Moses and what he did, we learn a little something about his parents. Moses' parents, by faith, did not put Moses to death according to the edict issued by Pharaoh. When you read in the early chapters of Exodus, you read that Pharaoh became afraid of the Israelites and how they were growing in number. And because of his wickedness and because of his fear and failure to trust in the Lord, he ordered that the Hebrew babies, the Hebrew boys, would be put to death. And if any of them were born, they were to be immediately put to death. Now, you can imagine the predicament that this put the Israelites in. Well, if we don't put a baby boy to death, then we're going to be a violation of this edict, and we will probably be put to death, and it won't ultimately end up saving the baby's life because the baby will be put to death anyways too. 
So you can imagine how this was a challenge, a tension. What do they do with this wicked order issued by the Pharaoh? Well, Moses' parents, by faith, said no to the wicked order, and they preserved the life of Pharaoh. They saw the child was beautiful. I don't think this was a commentary in terms of like, oh, this is a cute baby. We shouldn't kill him. It was more than that. They, they understood that God had a purpose and a plan for Moses. And by faith, they said, we are going to risk our lives to do what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord. They feared the Lord more than they feared the most powerful man on earth. And their fear of the Lord led them to walk and act in righteousness. The fear of the Lord replaces and frees us from the fear of man. For Christians, fear of the Lord is a good thing and a good gift from God. There's a difference from being afraid of God and walking in the fear of the Lord. If you're not a Christian, you should rightly be afraid of God because he is a righteous judge. He is a judge of all the earth, and there will be a final judgment But for those who have believed in Christ and been saved, we don't fear the day of judgment. We don't fear God's judgment because we have been saved by grace through faith. But we walk in the fear of the Lord, knowing that he is holy. He is righteous. He is powerful. He is transcendently pure. And we are to obey him. We are to submit to him. We are to worship him. Fearing the Lord is a good thing. As a matter of fact, the fear of the Lord is one of the promises for every believer under the new covenant established by Jesus Christ. The prophet Jeremiah foretold of the new covenant. And in chapter 32, verses 39 through 40, he said, I will give them one heart in one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God gives us the fear of the Lord for our good and the good of our children, so that we will rightly walk with him and obey him, enjoying his goodness and his blessing. Fear of the Lord keeps us in right relationship with him so that we might enjoy his presence, so that we might enjoy his goodness, so that we might enjoy his blessing. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of the Lord keeps us safe in him. The fear of man, on the other hand, is dangerous. We need the Lord to free us from the fear of man. By faith, we fear the Lord which displaces the fear of man in our hearts and lives. Moses' parents did what was good and right because they feared the Lord, not Pharaoh. Similarly, in verse 27, we read that Moses left Egypt by faith, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Love the paradox there. Moses feared the Lord. He saw him who is invisible. Now, admittedly, this verse in Hebrews is a little bit tricky because when you read through the book of Exodus, you read that Moses left Egypt twice. First, when he fled after he killed an Egyptian man, Moses looked out as an adult. He understood. He recognized that he was Hebrew. He saw his 
fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian man, and so he killed the Egyptian man and buried him, thought he got away with it. The next day he saw two Israelites fighting, and he said to one of them, why are you doing that? Why are you mistreating your brother? And, another one, and he said to him, well, what are you going to do? Kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses fled, and we read that he was afraid. The second time he left was at the time of the Exodus, which we'll get to in a moment. It makes a little more sense if Hebrews is referring to Moses not being afraid, if it's referring to the Exodus, but the placement of Hebrews indicates that this is the first time he left Egypt before the Exodus. So what did the author of Hebrews mean when he said that he, did not, he was not afraid of the anger of the king? Is the author of Hebrews guilty of revisionist history? Well, the answer, of course, is no. The author of Hebrews knew the Old Testament scriptures exceedingly well and sometimes quoted those verses verbatim. So how do we understand this? I think we have two options. Again, one, maybe he's referring to the Exodus when Moses left in the Exodus. Maybe it's just a little bit of an odd placement by the author of Hebrews. That's definitely a possibility. Or he was referring to his first departure, and his point is that Moses' fear was not the ultimate reality in his life. Yes, maybe he feared the anger of the king, but he feared the Lord even more. That was the greater reality in his life. Whatever the case, for Moses, the invisible reality of God was greater than the visible reality of Pharaoh. Well, we see the fulfillment of the promise from Jeremiah 32 play out in the book of Acts. This fear of the Lord driving out the fear of man. We see this, for example, with Peter. Peter, of course, is known for his denial of Jesus. In Jesus' darkest hour, Peter denied him three times, even though the Lord told him ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no, I won't. And then he did. His courage gave way when the rubber met the road. But once he received the gift of the Spirit, his life was changed and transformed. And he preached the gospel boldly. And when he preached the gospel boldly, people came to saving faith in Christ. And this did not sit well with the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. They opposed Christ when he was alive and they opposed Christ after his death and resurrection by opposing the apostles. And they tried to shut down the preaching of the gospel. They told them, stop doing this. They threatened them. And Peter responded, we must obey God rather than men. <laughs> Peter feared God in that moment more than he feared these powerful men who could make his life miserable. And again, we see this time and time again throughout the book of Acts, this boldness in preaching the gospel in spite of opposition, in spite of persecution, imprisonment, and even death for some of the believers. There was boldness. Why? Because the believers feared God more than they feared man. Brothers and sisters, this gift is for us. This gift of the fear of the Lord that empowers us to live bold lives of faith. We don't fear man. We don't fear the consequences that any man could impose upon us. Do you struggle with the fear of man? Brothers and sisters, I exhort you to take hold of the new covenant promise by faith in Jesus Christ. Do not be enslaved by the fear of man. Be free. The fear of the Lord is yours in Christ Jesus. And the fear of the Lord displaces the fear of man in your life. Praise God. The second thing we must understand and apply is that faith chooses Christ over the world. One of the things we should appreciate about Jesus 
is that he was upfront about what it would take to follow him. During his ministry on earth, he laid it out very clearly. Here's what it means to follow me. There was no bait and switch. There was no, hey, follow me and you'll have your best life now, only to have them face persecution and trials later on. He was clear. He was up front. He said, if you follow me, you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross, instrument of torture and execution, and follow after me. The world's going to hate you because the world hates me. You're going to be persecuted because the world has persecuted me. Jesus was, was clear on this. Following him, although absolutely worth it. And then the only way we can enjoy true peace and joy and contentment in all of God's good blessings will be hard. During his ministry, he made clear that everyone who would come after him must be willing to lay down their life, take up their cross, follow in his steps, and obey his commands. And what we see in our passage today is that there were Old Testament saints who understood this long before Jesus began his public ministry. In verses 24 through 26, we read an extraordinary thing about Moses. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He enjoyed all that accompanied that. He enjoyed power. He enjoyed wealth. Any pleasure he want, wanted was there for him, was there for his taking. All the best things the world has, had to offer were at his fingertips. And yet, he turned his back on all of it. He gave it all up. Rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin, he chose to be mistreated with God's people. He understood that the best things the world has to offer don't last. He understood that the pleasure that comes through sin is fleeting and doesn't ultimately satisfy. He understood, therefore, that it was better to be mistreated with God's people than to indulge in worldly and sinful desires. He was looking forward to the reward. What God gives us is better than what sin offers us. What God gives us is better than what the world offers us. What God gives us is better than what Satan offers us. And it's not close. Brothers and sisters, I hope we remember and reflect on verse 26 with crystal clarity. I hope the words reverberate in our hearts and our minds. I hope they occupy our thoughts and arrest our attention. I hope they shape our attitudes, desires, affections, and way of life. You will be hard-pressed to find a more powerful description of what it means to follow Jesus. Listen again to verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Jesus is so much better, so much sweeter, more desirable, and more satisfying than anyone or anything else that is better, that it is better, more valuable, and more enriching to suffer for him than enjoy the best the world has to offer. You will be richer if you suffer for Christ than gain the world and indulge your desires. Do you believe this in your innermost being? Do you believe that it is greater wealth, the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the best things this world has to offer? Oh, that we might have such faith. You will only know that personally 
in your innermost being if you lay hold of it by faith. Moses understood what so many have sadly failed to understand. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus encountered a rich young man who approached him with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, follow the commandments. What commandments, he said. And Jesus began to list the second half of the Ten Commandments. And this man thought very highly of himself. He thought very highly of his righteousness. He said, oh, yeah, I've obeyed those. I've done that. And Jesus said, one thing you still lack. Go sell your possessions. Go sell what you have and come follow me. And the man went away sad. What a tragic story. He went away sad. He didn't want to give it up. He didn't want to follow Christ. For the rich young man, his riches were greater wealth than the reproach of Christ. Oh, what do those riches mean to him now? That rich young man who met Jesus face to face during his earthly ministry is a real person who really spoke with Jesus, who really had the opportunity to follow Christ. He turned his back because he had great possessions. And unless he repented later in life, he is now suffering in eternity the consequences for his rejection of Christ. Right now, he still exists. What do his riches matter to him now? What good are they doing? Oh, how he regrets that decision. What good is the success he achieved? What good is the money he accumulated? What good is the luxury he enjoyed? What good is the pleasure he indulged? What does that matter to him now? What a sobering warning for us. We need faith to take hold of Jesus and believe that the reproach of Christ is better than everything the world has to offer so that we don't make the same mistake as that rich young man. Oh, that we would consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of the world. Third thing, faith trusts God's ways. Sometimes God's ways don't make sense or seem best for us. We've already seen this in Hebrews chapter 11, where the author of Hebrews recounted Abraham and how God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. We read that story, and if you don't know the end of the story, you think, what in the world? Why? How is this a good thing? How does this make sense? Why would God call Abraham to sacrifice the son of promise? Why would he call him to do this evil, wicked thing? It did not make sense. Yet Abraham submitted himself to the Lord, and he obeyed the Lord, even when it didn't make sense. We also see that in our passage today. When the Lord led the people out of Egypt, he brought them to the edge of the Red Sea. When the, when the Egyptians pursued them, they were stuck. The people of Israel cried out, what, what are you doing? Why have you done this? Why have you brought us here? Why have you brought us to the edge of the Red Sea to be slaughtered? Wouldn't it have been better for us just to have remained in Egypt? But by faith, Moses led them according to God's ways. And God delivered them in a powerful, mighty, unexpected way. He parted the Red Sea, and they walked through as on dry land. Or dry land. But when the Egyptians followed, they were drowned. It did not make sense, but by faith, Moses led them in that way. And by trusting in God's ways, they were delivered. They were saved. When Joshua led the people of Israel 
into the land of Canaan to begin what we know as the conquest of Canaan, to take hold of the land that the Lord had promised to give them. Their first military campaign was against the city of Jericho, which had fortified walls, which may have been intimidating and seemed impenetrable to the people of Israel. But the Lord commanded them to employ an unusual military strategy that didn't make a lot of sense. He didn't say, build battering rams. He didn't say, set fire to the gates. No, he said, march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, do it seven times. And then blow the horns. When they followed God's ways, which did not seem to make sense, the walls fell. God gave them victory his way. When they trusted in him, he delivered. He provided. He granted them victory. By faith, Abraham, Moses, Joshua trusted the Lord and obeyed his commands even when it was hard and didn't make sense. And what do we see? God has proven himself to be trustworthy time and time again. He calls on his people, including us, to trust him by obeying his word even when it is hard and might not make sense to us. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Brothers and sisters, we need faith to trust in the Lord in his ways. We don't want to trust in our own understanding. We don't want to trust in our own intuitions, our own reason, our own logic. We want to trust in the Lord. We want to take him at his word. We want to obey his commands, knowing that they are good and they are good for us. I love the inclusion of Rahab in the heroes of the faith. Rahab is known as a prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute, that's the identifying marker for Rahab. Rahab, which Rahab? The prostitute. Oh, that Rahab. <laughs> Rahab, the prostitute, turned, uh, risked her life when the spies came into her city. She risked her life. She took a great risk in helping them. By helping the spies, she was committing treason against the city of Jericho. If she would have been found out, it would have been easily punishable by death. She risked her life believing that the Lord and his people would be victorious. She turned her back on the wicked city and joined herself to the Lord and his people. She was not saved because she had lived a moral, virtuous life. She was saved by grace through faith because she put her trust in the Lord. We too must put our trust in the Lord. We too are saved by grace through faith. This is God's way of salvation, which doesn't make sense to the natural man. The natural man says, well, if I could live a good life, I will earn my way. I'm banking on the fact that I will be accepted into heaven by living a good life. But God's way says that, no, you are a sinner. You can only by, be saved by grace, uh, saved by grace by faith in Christ. You must wholly trust in Christ. You cannot trust in yourself. Don't bet on yourself. Wholly trust in him. This is God's way of salvation that we must fully embrace and submit ourselves to. So far we've seen that faith frees us from the fear of man, chooses Christ over the world, and trusts God's ways. Now we come to the final section of chapter 11. The Old Testament scriptures make up about 75% of your Bible. A lot of content. There are a lot of stories of men and women of faith. But by verse 31, in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews had spent a good amount of ink discussing heroes of the faith. Yet, he had only made it to Rahab, whom we read about in Joshua, which is the sixth book of the Bible. He had not covered a lot of ground. He had not made it very far through the Hebrew scriptures. And so the final section of heroes in chapter 11 is a summary. He realized, I could keep going. 
I could go on a long time. He probably stepped back and thought, okay, this is getting a little bit long. You know, I can identify this. You know, he's starting to get a little self-conscious. This sermon right now is getting a little bit long. I need to hurry it up. I need to summarize a little bit. I need to get to the point. I need to land the plane here. And so he began to give a summary of the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. I could go on, he said. I could keep going. I could tell you all these stories. But let me just give you a summary of who they are, what they did. And two things stand out in this summary. Faith leads to great deeds. Faith endures suffering. So in verses 33 through the first half of 35, remind us of stories that you are familiar with. If you've read and studied uh, the Old Testament, you've heard these stories about these people who conquered kingdoms, military battles. They, they uh, enforced justice. They shut the mouths of lions. They endured the furnace. They, they had all these incredible victories. The Lord used them to do great deeds, wonderful stories demonstrating God's power. They trusted God, and he worked powerfully in their lives. These stories remind us that God is mighty to save. Nothing is too hard for him. No obstacle is great. I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when Nebuchadnezzar threatened to throw them into the furnace if they refused to worship the golden image he set up. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, he said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Absolute confidence in the Lord. Oh, he's going to deliver us. But it's not so much that they knew. They didn't base their certainty on the outcome. They knew God was powerful to save. They believed he would, but they were like, if he doesn't, it doesn't change anything. He's still the one true living God, and he's the only one we're going to worship. That is faith. That is confidence in the Lord. And that's what we see, these heroes of the faith. They believed God. They trusted in him. They put their faith in him. They trusted in him. They conquered because of him. I love reading the story of David and Goliath. David's confidence was not actually in his ability to, to sling that stone. The difference was, he's like, we, we belong to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. God will give us victory. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord. He is great. He is awesome. He is powerful. And he will ultimately be victorious. So we see faith leads to great deeds. I do think it's important for us to take a moment to recognize that great deeds in the eyes of the Lord are not always great deeds in the eyes of man. Second thing we see is faith endures suffering. Lest we are led to believe that great, great faith always leads to victory in this life, the author provided a different examples that reveal great faith. Yes, sometimes faith is revealed through victory, but it is also revealed through willingly enduring suffering for the Lord. Many saints with great faith have endured all kinds of suffering. Many have been mocked, ridiculed, tortured, imprisoned, destitute, and put to death in a variety of terrible ways. These things have happened to saints in the Old Testament, saints in the New Testament, and saints throughout church history in every generation. And what does God's word say about these saints whom the world despised, mistreated, and killed? His word says the world was not worthy of them. The world says they are worthless and they are scum, but through the eyes of faith, we see that the Lord says, you are beautiful and precious and the world doesn't deserve you. When your faith is strong, you will joyfully accept his will, whatever it may be. The person of faith says, Lord, your will be done. 
If living by faith means I shut the mouth of a lion, so be it. If living by faith means I'm sawn in two, so be it. May I glorify you in life and in death, in victory and in suffering. Doing great things for God does not always appear to be great things in the eyes of the world. Yesterday, we remembered our dear sister Lois Glover through her memorial service. Wonderful, powerful testimony of her faith and how the Lord worked through her. One of the many things I appreciated during that time of remembering and reflecting. One of the things that stood out to me was when Lois's daughter, Christy, daughter-in-law, Christy, said, Lois wanted to be a missionary, but the Lord shut the doors. But she ended up doing great things for God in other ways. Great things for God, teaching the Bible, caring for children, doing things behind the scenes that many people never saw. But she did it by faith. She had rock-solid faith in the Lord that led her to live her life in such a way that she served and she sacrificed. She gave herself for the good of others. And the Lord used her in that way. Faith does lead us to do great deeds for the Lord. Oftentimes, they're not recognized as great deeds by the world. It leads us to love to serve, to sacrifice, to give, to endure suffering and hardship. So faith frees us from the fear of man, chooses Christ over the world, trusts God's ways, leads to mighty deeds, and endures suffering. I know five things are hard to remember. I might not remember the five points next week, but I hope you'll grab on to one or two of those this morning. I hope you'll grab on to one or two of those and reflect on them. Meditate on them. Ask God to grow your faith in that particular area. Maybe it's the fear of man. Maybe you pray that God will help you to grow in the fear of the Lord and dispel the the fear of man in your life. Maybe it's choosing Christ over the world. Maybe you will pray that the Lord will help you to understand, to believe in your innermost being that the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the treasures of this world. Maybe you'll pray that God will help you to trust his ways, to take him at his word, to obey him. If you're not a Christian, this is probably the most important thing for you. We are so glad that you're here. and You're always welcome here. Our greatest desire for you is that you will believe in Christ and you will be saved. We are a room full of people Sinners who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. You are in need of a Savior just as we are in need of a Savior. You've sinned against God just as we've all sinned against God. Sin against God is rejection of Him, it's rebellion of Him. And so the just consequence, the appropriate consequence, is to be separated from God for all of eternity. If we rebel against God, if we reject Him, then we deserve to be separated from Him for all of eternity in hell. And that's what we get apart from Christ, apart from trusting in God's ways. God has provided a way for us to be saved from the hell that we deserve. It's by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Jesus lived a life without sin. He died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve, and he rose from the grave, conquering death. He ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But now, this period of time between his first and second coming, provides an opportunity for us to repent and to believe, to trust in his ways, to be saved. If you're not a Christian, believe in Christ. Be saved. Trust in God's ways. Maybe you'll pray that God will grant you stronger faith to do great deeds, to live a life of love and service and sacrifice and generosity. He'll give you that faith to give up your life. Maybe you'll pray that God will give you greater faith to endure suffering, trials, and hardship. Brothers and sisters, grab onto something this morning. 
Grab onto one or two things. Don't forget. Don't forget God's word. Let it reverberate in your heart and mind. Let it change you. Let it transform you. Let us be a people who grow continually in faith. May the evidence of that faith be seen in our community, in our life together. Chapter 11 concluded with a remarkable statement. Look again at verses 39 to 40, which read, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We have the privilege of living in the time when many of the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled. Christ is the fulfillment of the promises and prophecies made long ago, which the Old Testament saints looked forward to. And we, along with they, are united in Jesus Christ under the new covenant with the saints of old. We are united. We inherit this together. We are perfected together. We stand with them. We are united with them. We inherit these things together. This is God's good plan. This is a beautiful list of heroes of the faith. This is a list that includes sinners who failed in all kinds of ways. They failed miserably. They failed powerfully. Yet they were sinners saved by grace through faith. God granted them faith. May God grant us faith. May we be those who walk by faith and not by sight. Continue in faith. Continue to stake your life on the truth of the gospel and the reward God has promised for those who endure in believing in Jesus and holding fast to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What a precious gift. Your word is powerful. We thank you for our study of Hebrews chapter 11. We thank you for these examples, these heroes of the faith. Lord, you are the one who granted them faith. You are the one who was gracious to them, even though they were sinners, even though they failed. You showed them your grace. You gave them faith. And Lord, they are meant to encourage and instruct us. And so we pray that we will be encouraged. We pray that we will be built up. We pray that we will be instructed to live lives of faith together. Lord, we pray that you would grow and strengthen our faith. We pray that you would use us to help one another grow in the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.